Hello friends, welcome to Running and Fitness with Raj. This show will bring you exciting and interesting guests and give you specific and actionable advice on your running, fitness and general health. Our guest today is uh, Christy Ashwandan from the United States. Christy is the author of the highly book a highly acclaimed book Good to Go What the Athlete in All of Us Can Learn from the Strange Science of Recovery in which uh, she deconstructs and debunks a lot of what we are told marketed to and indeed practice around recovery by vocation uh, christy is a science journalist and was the former lead science writer at 538 a health columnist at the Washington Post and she's a frequent contributor to the New York Times and a number of other publications including Runner's World New Scientist Men's Journal and Smithsonian to name just a few christy is also the co-host of the podcast called Emerging Form which is about the creative process but apart from all this christy is an accomplished athlete in her own right she was a uh, she was a high school state champion in the 1600 meters a national collegiate cycling champion and an elite cross country skier so christy combines her own experience with athletics at a high level with her scientific bent of mind and looks for evidence in the claims she comes across and challenges them when she is not convinced so we are absolutely uh, delighted to have christy join us and uh, welcome to the podcast christy oh thank you so much for having me it's a pleasure to be here thank you for taking the time so just to set the stage can you uh, share with the listeners a little bit of your background and uh, how you came to be interested in uh, science journalism and where did this curiosity come from and which obviously you have developed as a career as an author as a journalist so over to you sure yeah so i guess it began i was i was a an athlete starting in high school i, I ran cross country and track for my high school team and also in college at university of colorado um and at, at university i became very interested in science i guess my science uh interest started in high school actually i always enjoyed enjoyed science when i was in high school and also my dad um has a degree in physics and used okay. to teach physics and so I, i kind of come from a you know family of science geeks i guess so i always was sort of predisposed to enjoy science and i liked sports i did sports uh, i went on in college to also start cycling and so i i was a a serious cyclist for quite a while and then cross country skiing was something that i took up a little bit a little bit later but i was a professional on the team rosignol for quite a few years and was traveling and racing all over europe um for that so i i have an extensive background in in several endurance sports and now you know i've long long ago retired from elite competition but i still like to get out there and do things i'm a, you know kind of more of a weekend warrior recreational athlete and my goal at this point is really to stay fit enough to do all the fun things that i enjoy doing and absolutely yeah 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 but i think you know the book really came out of um these dual interests that i have one being sport and the other being science and so um After college I always thought that I was going to go on to become a scientist but I couldn't quite ever decide on the one thing to get my PhD in and so I kept bouncing around between different topics and then I finally realized that if I became a, a science journalist I could research and learn about all of these topics and all of the things that I was interested in without having to limit myself to one and so that was really appealing so that's what I went on to do I've been a science journalist now for over 20 years 
um, you know, in the meantime, I was also doing sport. And so combining those two really just felt like a natural thing. And so this book, Good to Go, really came very much out of my own experience. You know, as an athlete, um, looking back on my athletic career, I realized that recovery was really the one thing that I never quite mastered. And, you know, to the extent that I mastered it, I guess in sort of my, my later years, I finally figured it out. But I wasted a lot of time early on in my career getting recovery wrong and, and thinking about it in the wrong way and thinking that, you know, there was all these things that I needed to do and that I always needed to train harder. And what I sort of learned over time was that recovery is really, really important and that, you know, the training that you do only benefits you to the extent that you're recovering from it. And what I sort of eventually realized about myself is that my need for recovery was a little bit more than a lot of my peers. I actually got fit quite fast compared to other athletes, but I also became overtrained very easily. And so okay. for me, that, that sort of window between sufficient training and too much was much more narrow. Um, there are a lot of athletes who really do respond to a lot more training. And for me, the sweet spot was actually doing a little bit less, but that wasn't what I was trained and programmed to do. I was always had this idea built into me that, you know, you have to do more. And if you want to get better, you want to do more, more, more. And it turns out that that's, that's not the case. And it's not the case for most people, but in particular, okay. it wasn't the case for me. And so I think really this book is the book that I wish I had had, you know, when I was in high school or college, you know, early in my athletic career, I think if I had, I wish I would have known some of these things earlier on so that I could have been really paying attention to the things that matter and not being distracted by things that were less important. Yeah. So if you look back also, I think in the way uh, training has evolved over the last, uh, you know, maybe four or five, uh, for four or five decades, mm-hmm. uh, in, initially, probably in the seventies and eighties, the theory was uh, exactly as you said, you know, keep pushing very, very hard and yeah. people, you know, the harder you are, the harder you work. And then, you know, there has been obviously scientific evidence backed uh, uh, understanding that, you know, about 80, 20 or doing most of your mm-hmm. work uh, at an easy level. And, uh, you know, this this saying that uh, we as marathoners always are told by our coaches, yeah. which is it's better to be at the start line, a few percentage Undertrained, undertrained, right. rather than rather than even being one percent overtrained, because exactly. chances chances are very high that you may never get there in the first place. So, that's however, true. I mean that sets a good stage. But I still want to probe a little more on this because recovery is not the kind of obvious topic when when a journalist uh, thinks about or a runner thinks about to write a book about. I mean, sure, maybe <laughs> maybe yeah. a few articles uh, here or there because otherwise you talk, you know, write books about uh, training, you about maybe diet these mm. days more maybe about the psychology or the mind body connection. So, I mean, how did that all come together that uh, you you kind of figured out there is enough material out there which will be interesting to the audience to talk uh, talk about as a, as a, as a full book on uh, recovery so how was how how did that process come about sure that's a good question um you know i think it really came about because i realized a couple things one is that there was an incredible amount of marketing going on around recovery and that was something that felt um relatively new that really in the last five or 10 years, this has really become a thing where 
where there were so much more marketing and many more products, even then when I was competing, you know, some of these things just didn't even exist when I was an elite athlete, you know, like the massage guns and, and some of these things, the cryotherapy, that's relatively new. And so a lot of these things were just, I, I was seeing them. And as a journalist, I was, you know, inclined to sort of take a skeptical eye and say, okay, does this stuff really work? And, you know, when I set off to research this book, I was really hoping that I would find some, you know, really new, exciting things that worked. And what I found is that most of the newfangled stuff was actually just sort of repackaged old information. And most of it, you know, doesn't trump the stuff that we know actually really, truly works. And so um, that was part of it, just this, this. And I'm sure, I'm sure at some level, your scientific, you know, you would have got irked by the fact that a lot of these claims are not really backed oh, yeah. by, by evidence, right? As absolutely. You, as yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so so there are two things, you know, there's, there's this observation that all of a sudden, there's all this sort of bogus marketing going on. But then the second part was just that, as a journalist, and sort of someone with a scientific background, I was also very interested in like, how do people evaluate claims, you know, these things that are marketed to people, not just athletes, but you know, the general public too. you know, how do we assess these? And what I saw here was really an opportunity to write about something that I've been really interested in for a long time, which goes beyond just the sports, the sports field. And that is just, you know, how do you assess evidence? How do, how is science done? And how do you do research studies to examine these things? How do you show whether a particular thing works or doesn't? And I really hope that people will read the book because we'll, we'll be talking about some things today. But I, I hope that one thing the book really does is help people understand um, sort of the scientific process and the methodology and why my sort of one ambition for the book was I really wanted people to come away from it, understanding not just about the topics that I've, I've discussed. I mean, I hope that they'll take away, you know, those lessons, but really that they will leave with this much better understanding of, okay, how do I assess these claims? If I'm being presented with a study that's being used to back up some claim that someone's giving to me, how do I know whether that's reliable? How do I know whether a particular finding is trustworthy? And so there's bigger questions about, you know, how do we assess science? How do we understand what's true? How do we understand the world around us even? You know, human physiology is extremely complex and, 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 I, and I guess And I guess also asking the question, who is sponsoring this study? Right, I think that's right. <laughs> And I mean, that that's a really good place to start. You know, who has a vested interest here? And, uh, you know, who's telling you this finding is true? Uh, one of the, the issues I discussed in the book is just this thing. It's often called uh, the file drawer problem where, you know. Sorry, could you I, repeat that? Could you repeat that? Yeah, the, the, what, what the, the file drawer problem. So, file drawer problem. Okay. Yeah. So the idea is, you know, you do 10 studies on, let's say, a supplement or something, and nine of them show nothing and one of them shows something. So if I put nine of those in the file drawer, never publish them, <laughs> never share them, and all you see is that one study, it makes it look really positive. But if all of a sudden you know actually that's only one data point out of 10, you know, it, it's no longer quite as compelling. And I think just simple things like this that people can be trained to think about and to ask and to look at. And so when you have a vested interest, for instance, a company that's making a particular product and they're presenting you with one study, you have to ask, well, what are the other studies that they do? You know, did they um, declare in advance what they were doing and sort of, um, you know, hold themselves accountable to that study design? Or do they do a study and fish around until they found some sort of result that that seemed 
promising that they could use to sell you the product. And one of the real lessons that I learned while writing this book is that so much of the research in this area, and by this area, I mean sports nutrition, sports, you know, performance science, stuff like this. So much of that science is not done as you know, something to really understand the world and, and elucidate how things work, but they're really done as marketing exercises. And the purpose being, you know, how do we find some sort of finding that we can use as to, you know, tell the public that this is bona fide and to really, you know, I almost think of it as science washing where they're trying to give a veneer of science to something that that isn't really that scientific. No, this is really, really helpful, especially the fact that you are helping the readers uh, uh, with a framework which then they can they can yeah. use when they when they when they come across so uh, before we get into each of those uh, each of those findings about the different aspects of uh, recovery i just wanted to ask you a slightly open ended question were there i mean obviously there must have been some claims which you were very skeptical about or you kind of intuitively felt you know, this doesn't add up. Uh, but as you dug deeper into this, and I know, I, I think I remember, if I remember correctly, I, in one of the interviews, you had mentioned that you probably dug through something like 1000 scientific journals or yeah. research papers. So you did obviously extensive work around this. Were there things which kind of uh, surprised you still like uh, you were, wow, okay, this, this, I mean, so what were the things which kind of Kind of where you could corroborate your intuition and what were the things which were absolutely like very surprising for you? Yeah, I guess one big surprise actually is I, I genuinely was assuming, you know, I went into this project assuming that, okay, surely some of the stuff that I'm looking into will be bogus. Like that, I, I kind of knew that that was the case. I'd done enough reporting and seen some stuff that was clearly, I mean, some of the stuff is just ridiculous, you know, like the, <laughs> the, what is it, the molecular water and just, I mean, even just the terms themselves, you know, uh, Tom Brady's um, infrared pajamas. I mean, this is just nonsense. But I really thought that, you know, while that might be the case, they were going to be, I, I really expected to identify some really, um, you know, cutting edge things that really were making a difference and that were things that were new to me and that, that you know, science had identified. And what I found is that that really wasn't the case. The things that really work are the things, you know, people think of them as boring. It's like, eat well, sleep enough. I mean, there's nothing more important to recovery than sleep, but no one wants to hear that. You know, that's not the sexy thing. It's not an app that you can put on your phone. It's not something you can buy. You, know, you can't sort of hack your way into this. And so that was a little bit surprising. And then there were a few things. I think the one probably that was most shocking to me is that I had really come up um, as a cyclist. I used to do stage races. We would do these you know, long days on our bike. And always afterwards, we would either go into an ice bath or we'd jump into an icy stream. You know, I was doing a lot of these uh, races in the mountains where there's very cold uh, mountain streams that you can jump into. But this idea of icing your muscles after a hard, intense effort, you know, was really sort of beaten into me. And I really, I just, I guess I had never really questioned that it worked. I assumed that it did because everyone was doing it and we all did it. And we knew that we felt better after doing it. You know, I had never done a controlled trial to compare how I did before or after. But when I looked at the research studies, it turned out that icing actually doesn't seem to be helpful. And in fact, it can, this is the one thing one of the few things that I found that really seems to clearly be detrimental in a lot of cases. And the reason that it's detrimental is that um, what icing does do is it does um, 
temporarily and temporarily only, it does reduce inflammation a little bit, you know, it reduces swelling. And this is one reason why, you know, sometimes it, it can be a good idea if, it, if you have a sprained ankle or something like this, you may want to do this just so that you're, you know, you don't, you don't have that added pressure and there can be pain. It can be a very good pain reliever. Um, but that inflammatory process is really your body's healing process. And so what you're really doing to the extent that it's working is that it's actually slowing down the healing process. And there's actually some pretty good evidence now that doing things and uh, taking anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen is another thing that also seems to hinder recovery a little bit and recovery from an injury. Now, the effects are small. This isn't something like you're going to ruin yourself you know, by doing this, but the idea that you're doing it to help yourself doesn't pan out at all. And so instead of, you know, instead of hastening your recovery, what you may be doing is slowing it down a little bit. And then in the meantime, if you've ever been in an ice bath, it's actually quite unpleasant. So you're yeah, putting absolutely. yourself through this really like excruciating thing. And, but it's interesting, you know, I do have in the book an entire chapter about placebos. And uh, I, I really do think that icing kind of falls under this a little bit because what we know, and there's very good research to show this, is that placebos that are painful are much more effective than placebos that are inert. So taking a placebo pill is not going to help you. It's not going to be as powerful a placebo as, say, a placebo shot. Um, you know, and maybe a cream that you would put on your muscle for recovery is not going to work as well as an ice bath or cryotherapy, something that is painful. So, you know, there are other, other effects at play here. And this can really confuse things and it can make it hard to, to really identify what's working if you're not doing careful studies. Okay. So before we go into the recovery, which is typically, you know, what we do after, after a workout or after, after, after a race or something, I wanted to just touch upon this whole concept around stretching, right? I mean, I do oh, yeah. stretches, I do stretches, I feel, you know, I feel good about it. But then, you know, especially during, during my podcasting journey, I've had physiotherapists and I've had a, one or two other guests also pointing out, well, actually, there isn't too much of scientific evidence that it works. But if you feel good about it, you know, there is no harm, there is no downside. So what have you, of, you know, what are, what have you figured out around stretching? Yeah, this is another one that that just has so much tradition around it. And this is this is one I actually learned about this years ago, because I was assigned this was probably 15 years ago, I had a magazine editor assign me a story, they wanted me to just write about the scientifically proven benefits of stretching. And I said, sure, I'll write that story. And then I went and looked and I realized I couldn't find any. <laughs> so it, the, the story kind of took a turn. Um, but it's so interesting, because I sort of grew up stretching a lot. This was, you know, I was told that this is how you prevent soreness. It makes you, you know, prevents injury, all of these things. And it turns out that there's just very little evidence for either of those claims. Um, and it, it's interesting too, there's actually some evidence that in certain situations, and this isn't universal, but it can actually potentially hinder performance very short term. So if you're about to go do an intense sprint, you probably don't want to do intense stretching right beforehand. That doesn't seem to aid performance and can actually uh, hinder you a little bit. But again, these these effects are small. But the important thing is that the, the purported benefits, which you know, for stretching, we're so often told that this is going to reduce soreness or that it's going to prevent injury. And on both of those cases, there just really is not good evidence for that. Okay. And there have been some pretty large studies looking at it. So it's, you know, I think that it's, it's, um, 
you know, to the extent that research in this area can be conclusive, I, I think, we, you know, there's nothing out there right now saying that it's, it's something to do for those reasons. But I think you said something that's really true earlier, and that is, you know, if it feels good, there, there may be other reasons to do it. So we're told that you do it to prevent injury. And so maybe it's not doing that, but it can also help people feel better. I know that peop some people really enjoy the feeling of stretching. And, um, you know, when you when you get to the concept of, of recovery, one of the things about recovery is it's just sort of giving your body some time to like relax. And so if stretching is a relaxing activity for you, it can be part of your recovery program. It's just that you sort of, I think it's important to kind of go into it knowing that the reason you're doing it is it's a way for you to relax and it's helping you with that. Not that it's actually doing something magical to your muscles. And that also means that then if you're someone who doesn't enjoy stretching, um, that you sort of have permission to not do it, you're not going to be missing out on some benefits that you might otherwise be getting. No, absolutely. So uh, after after listening to uh, a, a few of you, you know, I have dr drastically uh, dr drastically cut down on what what I call my stretching ritual. So uh, uh, yeah. in, in in a way, it's okay. So for example, like uh, you know, the run run the first. Uh, first kilometer or the first mile easy and that's good enough yeah. as a as a yeah. warm-up instead of spending 10 minutes uh you know doing various dynamic yeah. uh, dynamic stretches and things like that so uh, the, the way i want to move forward is uh, before we get to the you know the real you know some of the post uh post uh, training recovery i want to talk a little bit about hydration because that's something we take oh, during yeah. the during the race and there is this whole uh, marketing by by the obvious uh, obvious beneficiaries like this like the drinks manufacturers and all that about certain amount of hydration you have to do during a race and things like that and coincidentally I had interviewed uh, Dr Tim Noakes yesterday and we, oh, we yeah, spoke, okay. where we spoke yeah. about uh, uh, hyponatremia and yeah. and actually the the what extreme hydration can actually be doing to you i mean in the in the sense that it can even be fatal and it has proven to be unfortunately yeah. fatal for a few athletes so just take us through your thoughts on how to approach uh, hydration yeah it's actually quite simple and that is drink when you're thirsty and drink to thirst okay. i mean it really is that simple i i think that you know these companies the sports drink companies and now we have bottled water companies and this has become a whole industry, not just for athletes, but the whole wellness industry. Now people are telling everyone, stay hydrated and you must be drinking water at all times. Um, but our bodies have a really sophisticated system for making sure that you take in enough fluids and that's called thirst. And so as long as you're paying attention <laughs> and you're drinking when you're thirsty, and this goes... Um, also, when you're exercising, and in fact, when you're exercising hard, your body actually kind of... Um, it does some alterations. It's kind of complex, but there's a whole feedback loop um, with different hormones that are involved that, that ensure that when you're losing fluids and your, your sodium balance in your blood, <coughs> excuse me, which is what really matters for hydration, when this starts to get off, what happens is your body responds by releasing certain hormones that, that um, tell your body to hold on to water. So instead of excreting it and peeing more, urinating more, you actually, your kidneys can actually 
even reabsorb water that was in, you know, otherwise would be going into your bladder and being excreted as urine and holding on to that water. So you actually have quite a bit of wiggle room to, to deal with um, while you're, and while you're exercising, this is sort of tuned in to allow, I mean, when we think about it, you know, our ancestors weren't stopping every 10 seconds to drink when they were <laughs> hunting and doing things. I mean, uh, my grandparents were farmers and they would be outside in the field for long hours and they didn't carry water bottles with them. You know, they would drink at their meals and after and might stop for a water break. But this idea that you have to be hydrating at all times, um, our bodies, our physiology are actually quite adept at being able to adapt to some sweat loss and all of this. And so the important thing is to just, you know, listen to your thirst, drink when you're thirsty. You, if you're thirsty, you start drinking, you notice that water tastes really good. You want to keep going, but at some point you feel like, oh, that's enough. And you stop. And that's really enough. This idea that you need to get on a scale or like have some measurement. I've even seen now there are patches that could be used to monitor hydration status. I mean, this is just ridiculous. You know, have you ever thought about, are you breathing enough? Um, you know, we, we don't tell people stay, stay breathing, you know, stay aerated, you know, like our, our bodies know when to breathe and we breathe in enough and, and we do that. And hydration is very much the same way. I mean, it's just like, you know, our hunger cues normally will tell us how much to eat, but you know, our, we have this culture now that has kind of pulled us off the rails and told us that we can no longer trust our bodies and that we need a scientist there, you know, with a clipboard telling us what we need to do at what time. And this is just ridiculous. And I think it's also pretty dangerous for athletes. I mean, one of the most important things, the most important skills that you can develop as an athlete is this ability to read your own body. And so you don't want to be like drinking water or drinking a sports drink according to some schedule printed you know, in some uh, factory hundreds of miles away, what really matters is what's happening to you right now and how your body's adapting and your body's thirst mechanisms are, you know, going to tell you that. Now that said, I'm not saying don't ever drink water and you don't need to drink. I think it's very important to think about it. So if I'm going for say a three hour run in the heat, I know I'm going to get thirsty. I know that I'm going to be sweating a lot. I'm going to be losing fluid. So what I need to do is make sure that I have the, those fluids available so that I can drink to thirst. But that doesn't mean that I'm like weighing them out ahead of time or weighing myself and weighing myself after. If you are doing a marathon and you weigh yourself before and you weigh yourself after and you weigh and you have not lost any f fluids and have not lost a little weight from that, you're probably overhydrated and that's actually dangerous. It's actually more dangerous for you to be drinking too much than to lose a little, particularly in the situation where you finish the race, you drink you can do that. Um, while I was working on the book, I looked really hard and long to try and find an example of someone who had died of dehydration during a marathon. And I couldn't find a single ex example. Um, you know, people get in trouble with the heat and with heat stroke, but heat stroke is different than dehydration and dehydration sure. is merely a risk factor. Um, but there have been numerous people who have died from drinking too much water from hyponatremia, also called water intoxication. So this isn't just this um, minor thing. It's actually a fatal condition that we're seeing more and more now because we have all of these messages now to people that they have to drink when they're not thirsty. And so the best way to avoid hyponatremia is to not drink if you're not thirsty. The best way to stay hydrated is to drink when you're thirsty. And then when you're not thirsty anymore, stop. This notion that if you wait till you're thirsty, it's too late. That's just not scientific.
Okay. No, that's that's that really really helps uh, set the set the framework. And uh, I, you know, full disclosure, I am I, I had been in the past uh, a culprit of you know going by these standard measures in the sense uh-huh. like drink to, I, if I remember correctly, like in a race, make sure I get two hundred and fifty ml of water every hour. Now, now when I look back, you know, did I in all in, in all races under all conditions need two fifty ml of water? Uh, probably not. So, but uh, you know, almost ritualistically. I was, I was taking it, and I, you know, in preparing for the race, I, I used to spend a lot of my mind space, you know, planning it. Where yeah. do I get it? You know, all of that. So probably, you know, that's that's not uh, required going forward, and that's an habit I'm trying to change now. Before moving on, I wanted to request uh, all the listeners to please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. It will only take you a couple of minutes. but it will help the show enormously and help other listeners to discover the show so please do take a couple of moments to go and leave a rating and review on either apple podcast or itunes if you are using another app which allows you to leave a comment or a rating or review like for example castbox please do that either we also request you to please check out the website runfitraj.com and also if you have any comments or suggestions to please write to me directly at runningandfitnesswithraj@gmail.com you can follow all podcast related updates on instagram at the handle runningandfitnesswithraj or on facebook on the facebook group running and fitness with raj now let's get back to the show uh, we spoke about uh, the hydration during the race we spoke about stretching now let's come to some of the things that we are told that we should do and which you have covered in the book called as well one so icing is something that we talked about and just to just to for the listeners to you know quickly give a recap what christy has said is there is really no evidence in fact if anything under certain certain circumstances if you don't let the inflammation go through the natural process and hinder it with ice king it can probably be uh, probably be detrimental to your longer term or longer term yeah. recovery the other thing which we are drilled into our heads is like taking uh, fuel as in taking a protein shake or taking some food within a mm-hmm. 20 minute window or a 30 minute window uh, and it's and it's again you know as dogmatic as anything else out there uh, and i know you have some thoughts on that as well so can you share that with the listeners please sure yeah there there used to be this idea um the recovery window is what it was called and sometimes it was called the protein recovery window but there was this idea that immediately after exercise you had this very short period in which you really needed to refuel and that you needed to get some uh, carbohydrate and 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 protein also in order to replenish um your glycogen stores and to repair make repairs to your muscles you know this muscle damage that we get during exercise which is actually part of the reason we get fitter faster stronger because you you get this micro damage that you then repair and that makes you stronger um but there's this idea that there was just this very small window and that if you could refuel during that window and get it right then that then somehow your recovery would be better and so if you waited until after that window your recovery would be impaired and you wouldn't make the same kinds of gains well in the interim time it's turned out that that's just really not the case there are a few um situations where it might be important like that so for instance really the the instances where this holds is if you have done 
intense exercise and then you're going to go out and exercise again. And particularly if you're going to perform in that case, yes, you do want to refuel right away because it's like, you could imagine it's like refilling your tank after a long drive. So, you know, does it matter if you refill it right away or can you refill it, you know, the next time that you go out driving? And the, the answer is you could, you know, you only need to have it refilled the next time you're going to go out driving. So if you're not exercising again till the next day, you don't have to to eat right away and take that protein shake right away. You can wait till the next meal even. Now that said, if you finish your workout and you're really hungry, that's a good signal that probably it's a good idea to eat. And then that's a good idea to do that. And there are all these, I mean, this is one of those things where there are a million products that are marketed to athletes. And a lot of them are marketed with this, this promise that, you know, this will somehow enhance your recovery. And there's just not really good evidence for that. Now that said, there may be circumstances under which, you know, I will occasionally eat energy bars because they're convenient. There are situations sometimes where, you know, I can't have uh, a nice sandwich or real food or the kinds of things I might rather eat. I mean, I don't think most people really like these sort of convenience foods. I mean, I've never personally never enjoyed a protein shake. Um, yeah, there may be, there may be instances where it's just more convenient, but the reason to, to take these things is because of convenience and because you're hungry and you need, you know, that's the compelling reason to eat them now, not because there's some magic window. And if you miss it, your recovery will be impaired. And I think it's almost universally the case that real food is much better than some of these engineered performance foods, a lot of which are enriched with, you know, additives and things that, you know, normally we wouldn't really want to be eating. And so you need to be careful. It's always much better to get that stuff, to get vitamins and, and nutrients from food itself and not from additives. Got it. Okay. The other one, the other thing which, uh, you know, I wanted to talk about is this whole massage rolling, which is, uh, mm -hmm. which is again, uh, 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 you know, a large number of products are being marketed today for, you know, rolling. Uh, as you know, you, you mentioned, you mentioned about these massage guns. And then there is just the, you know, the physical massage where you get a masseuse and you get the. Yeah. So what's the evidence on massage? I mean, I, I mean, I admit that, you know, that, okay, it's, it's very nice and it's very relaxing, but let's leave that aside for a second and, yeah. and we'll come back to it. But in terms of the body itself, the, the, the physical part of it is, is it helpful? Yeah, I was, this is another thing that surprised me actually, because I love massage. I mean, what athlete doesn't most, most athletes love massage more than any other recovery technique. I mean, we certainly love it more than ice baths, right? Much more pleasant. Absolutely. Um, so I really expected that there'd be a lot of evidence for this, but the evidence that massage is helpful is actually quite slim. Um, there just isn't good evidence that it's helpful. And a lot of the explanations that are given, one of the most common ones is that you're somehow flushing these byproducts of exercise um, out of your muscles. And there's just not good evidence for that. And, you know, the other thing is, you know, the way that your body flushes this stuff is with your blood and, and athletes tend to have good circulation. So that's already happening. You know, this idea that you're flushing your blood, well, your blood is already flushing. Your blood is circulating. If you have good circulation, which yeah, if you're true, actually one, one, one thing which people keep saying is that the massage helps flush, uh, flush your lactic acid but when right. i have read a little bit uh, including you know your own work is that lactic acid actually clears much faster than the time you get to a massage anyway right i mean oh so yeah by the time you get to massage that lactic acid is gone and furthermore we did used to think that lactic acid was responsible or, or involved in 
in uh, soreness, but that's just not the case. We know now it is a marker for, you know, when you are exercising intensely, you will, you will produce lactic acid. And so I think that was where some of the confusion came in, but lactic acid itself is not the thing that's making you sore and doing something with it isn't going to help your soreness. Um, and in fact, you know, your body clears it so quickly that it's really impossible for one of these recovery techniques to do anything about lactic acid, because by the time you use one of these, whatever the product is, there are all sorts of products that make claims about lactic acid, but that lactic acid is probably already cleared by the time you're doing one of these things. Okay. So, uh, so uh, I don't want the listeners to get the wrong idea that Christy has pretty much debunked uh, everything in terms of uh, recovery and, uh, you know, even, even, even during the exercise like hydration. So surely there are some things which you think could work from a, uh, from a recovery perspective. Obviously you, you did touch upon uh, sleep, but can you summarize a few points which everybody can do? There is evidence for that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, something which, which will help you, you know, be in, a, be in a good shape for your next workout or race or what have you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one of the most important things, no, the most important thing that you can do is sleep. And okay. not just sleep, but make sure that you're getting adequate sleep, you're getting sufficient sleep. And this really means prioritizing sleep. And I think that's where most people go wrong is that, you know, especially now we're living in very fast paced cultures where it's go, go, go. And people tend to, there's even a word for this. Um, it's called, what is it called? Sleep procrastination where, you know, people stay up a little later to check their email one more time or to watch one more episode on, on the television or Netflix. You know? <laughs> my listeners, listeners cannot see yeah. it, but I just put my hand up freely <laughs> to admit I'm, I'm accused, I'm sorry, guilty as accused, Your Honor. So, <laughs> <laughs> Right. Yeah. So, you know, it's really about, about doing that and keeping a, a regular sleep schedule. I mean, I think sleep is one of those things that everyone knows that we should do, but very few people really get it right. And I'm always just stunned at how many high-performing people and sort of really go-getters are skimping on sleep. And I ask people, you know, how many hours of sleep did you get last night? How many hours did you get last night? I got about uh, six hours. Yeah. See, that's not enough. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it just, it, it's one of yeah. those things where, uh, you know, I knew I had this in the early in the morning, um, but, yeah. but I'm, I'm not trying to guilt you into it. I mean, it's just that I woke up because something you know, something didn't suit me what right. I ate last night. So I guess, so I woke up a bit earlier than usual. Yeah. 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 But this is something that's chronic and, and very often people, you know, uh, skimp on sleep and they, you know, if, if it was your workout where you said, well, I only did half as much today, you know, you would feel probably a lot worse. I mean, you wouldn't physically feel worse. The sleep is actually what's going to get you and make your workout less than optimal. But this sleep, sleep is where the magic happens. Sleep is actually where so much of this recovery happens because you're giving your body the resources it needs to make all these repairs, to do all of the recoveries. So sleep is really the most important thing. And there are all sorts of things. And I have a whole chapter on sleep in my book that has a lot of tips and a lot of useful information, not just about sleeping in general, but about ways different athletes in particular, professional athletes use when they're, tra when they're traveling, like how do you get good sleep when you're traveling, which can be really, really uh, challenging. So there's some tips about that. There's also um, some tips about ways to ensure that you get a better night's sleep just on a regular basis, things like that. So sleep is extremely important. It's the number one 
number two, number three, probably the top five things that you can do for your recovery or sleep. Um, but, but another thing that I think really doesn't get enough attention is reducing stress. And I think a lot of people don't understand that to your body, stress is stress. So we tend to think in terms of what is our training? What, what is the workout? How hard did I train today? How hard did I run? But you know, when you are under a lot of stress, that takes a physical toll on your body too. And so you're basically piling on and that's, that really saps your recovery. It reduces your body's ability to recover because you're just continuously stressing it. And you need to try and take that stress off your body. You need to give, what you want to be doing is maximizing the time that your body is not under stress. You know, when you're not training, you want to have your body as relaxed as possible so it can make all that recovery. The more that you can recover when you're not training, the harder you're going to be able to train the next time. And so I think what this really comes down to is ensuring that you have daily things that you're doing for rest and relaxation. And this should be something, you know, whether it's some sort of ritual whether it's something that you're doing, but it's some part of your day, some time in your day that's set aside just for relaxing, where you okay. don't have these things, you don't, you're not expecting to be productive, you're not trying to accomplish something, you're just kind of giving your body a deep breath and sort of taking things in and breathing in and breathing out. For some people, this may be meditation, you know, it can just be putting your feet up and reading a book, it could be, um, going for an easy walk where you're just sort of um, letting your mind sort of, um, you know, wander. wander, exactly. But it's something where you're really sort of letting go of that stress and giving your body time, time to unwind is, is really important. I think after sleep, that's, that's the top thing that you can do. God, you know, that's really, really helpful. And uh, in terms of your own work or what you are seeing others working on and not necessarily, you know, related to your book or the recovery, I mean, what are some of the new areas which kind of are exciting, which is which is uh, picking your in- interest these days? Yeah, in terms of, of sport, I guess. Um, yeah. You know, I think one thing that's really interesting to me is the extent to which it feels like we're sort of, I'm seeing a lot of people kind of really have this, <clears throat> I'm seeing a lot of people who are really kind of coming full circle and coming back to the basics. I think what's okay. happened is we've ha- sort of had this pendulum where it's really swung, where everyone's wanting products, buying things, apps. Uh, there's a huge trend towards quantifying data. But I think that what what happens is when people really spend a lot of time being thoughtful about this and paying attention, what you realize is that, you know, you can track all these data, you can get these really sophisticated sports watches, you can, you know, track this, that and the other thing and, and take all these data points. But usually that stuff isn't the stuff that ha- that matters. It's really about how are you feeling and all of those things add up together. How much I slept last night, how stressed I'm feeling, you know, how um, busy I've been, have I had a chance to relax at all today? All of these things come together to give you a sort of um, qualitative feeling of, of feeling good or feeling bad or feeling tired or feeling worn down. And so we tend to not trust that. And so you want to look at a number, you want to be able to track some number, you know, just tell me the thing to track, whether it's heart rate variability is something that was trendy for a while, 
Heart rate is another one that people look at. Maybe you're, you're tracking, you know, something about your sleep. Those things are all fine. But at the end of the day, what you really need to be able to pay attention to and read is just how your body is feeling. And I think just getting back to the basics of being able to understand that and being able to read that without sort of outsourcing it to these trackers and things, many of which, you know, aren't necessarily all that accurate. So you're, you're looking to technology to tell you something intrinsic about your body that you're really better off being able to understand for yourself. And so I think that's, to me, the most exciting, you know, place that this is going. And I, I see it was interesting as I was working on the book, I do have a whole chapter about data tracking and sort of the search for the perfect recovery metric. And what I found is that a lot of people, you know, when you get these like data tech people that go and spend a lot of time doing this, what they end up doing is they, they do this sort of long, hard lesson and, oh, wait, the way to solve this problem isn't with data. It's to like paying attention to my body and learning to pay attention to the right things. You know, just because you can measure something doesn't mean that that's the meaningful thing. And I think that's a distraction that a lot of people fall into. Yeah. And uh, just sticking to the basic, uh, as you said, very commonsensical thing, which are as well as which are also boring, I guess, you know, sleep, sleep well, sleep adequately, de-stress yeah. yourself i mean this this is applicable i guess in for all areas of life not just your recreational Absolutely. athletics and things like that so uh, i i i will put your uh, book and some of your you know your website links all of that in my in, in my show notes but this is Fantastic. a question i ask uh, this is a question that I ask uh, all my guests. But before I go there, I just wanted to tell all the listeners, it, this is a really wonderful book. It's a very different book. It, it was really an eye-opener for me. Uh, some of the long-term listeners would also remember people like Alex Hutchinson and Jason Fitzgerald talking about Christie's book. It's it's really worthwhile, uh, worthwhile uh, reading, and uh, it, it helps clarify a lot of things uh, to yourself. And as Christie said, uh, it's uh, very helpful in kind of giving you also a framework to which to evaluate things in the future yeah. and and build a healthy skepticism i'm not talking about being cynical about everything but you know <laughs> having a, a amount of healthy skepticism again when you are bombarded with all this uh, marketing and newfangled newfangled things right so uh so coming back to the other the question is basically uh, is there anything else other than the book that you know you would like to recommend to the listeners can be books or podcasts or youtube channels other blogs website uh, maybe a couple of suggestions yeah i really like the growth equation podcast i don't know if you're familiar with them um, uh, i haven't followed it myself but i'll check it out growth equation podcast okay yeah that's really great um, I, I think your listeners would enjoy that. Um, science and running is another one um, that's very good. I know you already had Alex Hutchinson on, but he's, I'm a huge fan of his. Uh, he's also a good friend of mine, but his work is fantastic. And I would highly recommend that people follow his, uh, he has a column at Outside Magazine called Sweat Science. Yep. That's quite yeah, good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All right. So I will I will put these as well uh, in the in the show notes. And if listeners want to follow you or maybe some of them may even want to get in touch with you. Sure. What's the best best way to do it? What are your social media handles you are happy to share? And uh, I mean, obviously, I'll link your uh, website and your blog uh, the, where you write uh, those things. I will anyway link. But social media, what do, what would you like to share? Yeah, on social media, I'm on both Instagram and Twitter. I am at CragCrest, that's C-R-A-G-C-R-E-S-T. 
Um, that's the name of my favorite trail run here in Colorado. It's the okay. nice, nice craggy crust trail run. Um, yeah, that's that's a good place to find me. My website, obviously, you can find my email there as well um, or DM me on Twitter. Okay, thanks a lot, Christy. This was really, oh, really interesting. Really no, no, yes, yeah, no, no. Uh, it was really. I mean, it's a very different episode for us because most yeah. of it is with uh, about training or diet mm -hmm. or you know athletes, uh, mm -hmm. but uh, something very dedicated to recovery and so insightful. I really hope uh, you know listeners get a very, very good perspective and uh, you know also go go about and then pick up your book to get more details as well. So thank you for taking the time. I know it's a bit late for you. Uh, but really, really appreciate. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Take care. Thank you very much to all the listeners. Please check out the podcast website, runfitraj.com. That is R-U-N-F-I-T-R-A-J.com. It has all the podcasts. It has all the show notes. And there is a very useful search function as well. You can reach out to me on my social media handles, which are running and fitness with Raj on both Instagram and Facebook. And you can also email me on runningandfitnesswithraj at gmail.com. Please let me know if you have any questions or specific guests you would like to see on the show. I also request you all again to please subscribe to the podcast and spread the word. Please also leave a review on iTunes as it will help enormously to grow the show. We will continue to bring you exciting and interesting guests and give specific and actionable advice. Stay safe, stay healthy. Until the next show, goodbye.